but it's definitely the one. Like I said, oh, oh yeah, because there was a somebody's always playing music in the pool uh, over here, so I changed, I messed around with the settings and turned the volume levels down a lot more. But now I'm concerned it's not coming through as if you much, stay right I, there I it sounds great fine. yeah i actually don't know how i sound right now okay um but do i sound okay 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 um my issue yeah, is a fan and my laptop that just never stops going um but i did put up some baffling in between the fan and the microphone so maybe that'll cut back on a little bit of it and otherwise i'll okay. just keep talking okay like i normally do um sweet Friends and fam, wait, hang on, how did, okay, is it just, welcome, no, shit, this always <laughs> happens, because I changed it, and we don't do this consistently yeah. enough, he needs to put out more movies, um, no. you could practice, welcome, practice friends, okay, here we go, yourself. welcome, friends and family all across the globe, to the fourth, Adam Sandler. All right, folks. Yeah, we're back uh, once again. Uh, it feels uh, pretty recent this time, but I, who knows when this is actually coming out. But we're doing the uh, much uh, requested episode, uh, requested by me much. primarily, uh, much requested by myself, um, episode on Airheads, which is a uh, 1992's Airheads. So we're going back. We're going back into the uh, into the backlog, into the catalog of movies that exist. Uh, and we're also doing something a little bit different in that this is not an Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> but I thought it was. He's on the cover. He's on the cover. And a couple and other like, guys I've never seen in just my put, life. Yeah, they wouldn't put someone on the cover if he wasn't the main character. That's, no, this was, this was fun. Right. Yeah, this was a great choice. I'm glad I um, resignedly <laughs> and resentfully finally acquiesced <laughs> to your insane demands <laughs> it's, ba it's basically been a four-year hostage negotiation um and yeah finally finally went for it um yeah so do you want to do the the intro give us a little spin on the old record of the backstory of the movie story okay i said 1992 it's 1994 okay. but yeah absolutely later, yeah. okay so, 1994. Remember 1994, mm. folks? Things were things were a little different back then. People listened to the radio. People were into yeah. rock and roll. Particularly, they were into a little something I like to call heavy yes. metal. Yes. <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, what was so interesting about this? So this is basically about um some what's what sometimes a type of person that is sometimes called a hesher. Yeah. Oh, uh, which is basically like. Long-haired uh, metalheads, like practicing in their band in their garage, like drinking beer, and, living uh, out of a kind van. Of essentially. Young guys, just yeah, li maybe living out of a van, just hoping to get chicks. Yeah, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. I mean, not all of these elements were in the movie, but that's kind of how I associate. Basically, them. all yeah. And, uh, Actually, the movie Hesher. Now that you mention it, is a really good. Oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah, example of that. He he is. He is a Hesher. I didn't know that was a term for the general type of person, but okay, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So that's ba that's basically what this is about, and it's kind of interesting that it is 1994 because this was actually 
so this would, would be post nirvana and the idea of uh i know i'm talking about something other do than it, the movie it. but that's okay um, the, idea, the idea uh that i think we have in pop culture which is so in the 80s we think of motley Crue, poison uh skid row and like these bands with like really wild hair like long hair and they like do up their hair uh put product in it and stuff um and like you know playing on the sunset strip in la uh girls 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 and partying all the time and like the music like fairly shallow in terms of uh, uh thematically or politically um, i'm sure if you are into these into the deep cuts i, I know on their like they, they sing about like their troubles and stuff too every but, rose has its thorn <laughs> at least uh, yeah every rose does have its thorn um but you know yeah uh and so the idea is that grunge with nirvana and pearl jam which was much more serious and a little bit less uh showy and flashy but more like substance and like a little bit darker mm. and uh and heavier uh thematically came and it kind of wiped all the hair metal out and it was just like okay now this is what's in um and so the idea that they made this in 1994 and it seems like it's about a thriving subculture uh is interesting to me because I think that's absolutely how things work, which is that one thing usually, pop culturally, one thing doesn't usually just like yeah, replace yeah. the other and then wipe it out. It's just a new thing will rise and then some people will be into that mm -hmm. instead. Yes. <laughs> um, Good point. And they even have a little aside to that where one of the characters mentioned something about Seattle and then one of the other characters is like, oh, you buy that all, all that Seattle crap. <laughs> so that's fun. Um, anyway, on to the actual movie. So we've got three three main characters played by Brendan Fraser in one of a very early role for him, I think. Was this was this in any way a sequel or spinoff to Encino Man? I, m I meant to look that up before. No, unfortunately, okay. I don't. I don't think it has any tie to Encino Man, other than just I feel like the same type of like early '90s comedy of just like goofy like almost like stoner comedies but not nobody's actually explicitly getting stoned yeah, yeah that's true so like so Polly shore very much his movies like encino man and that's kind of where brendan fraser came out of so this is a little bit more of a developed character than that um now i'm looking at brendan fraser's filmography and he certainly has some things in between them that well maybe all of these are stupid i don't know <laughs> I don't know what any of these are. School Ties. School Ties is a serious drama film, and that came out right after Encino Man. Okay. Uh, just as a sidebar, I'm sure I said this on a different one, but I did finally watch the movie Encino Man for the first time maybe like a okay. year ago. Uh, that's really all I have to say okay. about it, other than that I did finally watch it. <laughs> I missed, Check I missed that off it. The I don't box. know. Yeah, well, anyway. So... It's the same vibe as some of those movies. Oh, the other thing about that is, so Brandon Fraser does reprise the role from Encino Man, Link the Caveman, in a few other Pauly Shore movies as little cameo roles. But yeah, this isn't part of that same okay, universe. Okay. He's a new character. He's a metalhead. He's got a band. The band also has Adam Sandler in it as the drummer, as the kind of quiet, laid-back, slightly shy... Uh, drummer uh who 
I guess I, I can't hold this detail in is also like fucking ripped. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a scene where he's like naked. Basically, he has like a, a pillow or something over his uh, his private region. Very uh, good. And euphemism. he's he's in shape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's in shape. I just didn't time. picture that. Could be. You, like He puts a lot of uh, sports in his movies, as we've covered in every single <laughs> other one of his movies that we that we have watched. If this is your first, uh, first episode of the fourth Adam Sandler podcast that you're listening to, uh, we watched all the other ones. And, uh, <laughs> we can't he, get he, enough he likes of this sports, guy. is something we've gathered. He likes sports. I think he has a special interest in basketball and just to tie it way back to the movie eight crazy nights <laughs> where he also takes his shirt off in cartoon form and is like shockingly but now it makes sense and i made fun and i made fun of that because i was just like come on he had the animators draw like all these muscles yeah. on him no it was real <laughs> man i'll tell you what this is so going overboard was his first movie. I feel like I remember him being in pretty good shape and going overboard, but that was five years before Airheads. And then he did I, what I think are kind of small roles and shakes the clown and Coneheads. And then he gets Airheads. So this is really, I mean, this is before Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore. Like, we're really seeing a very early yeah. version of Adam Sandler. And I feel like yeah. seeing some of the elements of the humor that he'll kind of adopt as his, as like part of his shtick but we'll get to that but yeah just just saying it's uh it's cool to see such an early yeah. example of him of his acting yeah and then for sure the other band member the other band number is steve buscemi so presumably this is the origin of the steve buscemi adam sandler um like relationship which comes up in a bunch of adam sandler yeah. movies uh i mean he's in a, he's in like a bunch of the early ones he's in is he in billy madison he plays like a a weirdo <laughs> <laughs> that might be true of all yeah. of them actually now that you mention it i don't i don't remember him specifically in billy madison no he plays he plays a guy who like he's like calling in yeah and like, i'm glad i psycho. called that guy yes yeah. yeah. Um, Steve Buscemi plays the other guy in the band. Uh, I think him and Adam Sandler are brothers. Yes. Okay. So they want to get their record played. They did a demo tape. They want it played. They want to get signed, actually. Uh, so for some... Okay. So they decide to go to... Like, there's some other setup at the beginning, but just to get to the meat of it. They go to their favorite radio station, which plays a bunch of cool metal. Uh, sneak in. And they, they sneak in, and they just kind of they confront the DJ, and they're like, play our stuff, play our stuff. And he's not going to. And I think the, the slimy corporate executive guy uh, that is also in every 90s movie. Yeah, and played by <laughs> as the an antagonist. guy. Right, yeah. Um, he, uh, he, he's there, and he's like, no, get out of here. Um, and Steve Buscemi just happens to have a water pistol that he, it looks exactly like a real uh, machine gun, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and so he just pulls it out and they act, and takes everybody hostage. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> and then that's basically the movie: is that 
They're holding a record studio hostage using a fake gun. A radio studio. And yeah, uh, radio station. And to try to get their record played. And uh, then hijinks ensue, as That's they it, say. That's it, man. Yeah. I mean, I will, it was funny to me because there is probably like 10 minutes early on. There's like a scene of Brendan Fraser showing up at a record label and he sneaks in and, you know, security's after him, but he, he finds a record exec and he's like, I want to show you my work. And the guy's like, I can't take anything unsolicited, you know, good luck to you, man. You know, go, go keep grinding. And, um, he, so he gets kicked out, then goes to his girlfriend's house, gets kicked out of her house because she actually works a nine to five and he doesn't do shit. Um, and he's really petulant and a big baby. So she's like, get the hell out of my house. Um, kicks him out and then so he goes to live with Pip and Rex Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi respectively and they're just kind of like yeah we gotta go to the the radio station and just get our stuff played on the air and at the same time Steve Buscemi is like look if there's ever an intruder I'll use this fake gun and shoot hot sauce at the intruder and then they decide to bring the guns along when they break in I don't know it just it felt very like that first little moment of getting us into the plot was just a little bit like they did not I don't know if they were afraid to think it through like the writer I don't know if the writer was like too afraid to think through the logistics of it or if it was just like I don't give a shit this is a movie called Airheads we'll you know let it play out however it plays out but with a movie that is clearly like riffing on Die Hard and feels so intricate. It's very annoying <laughs> in the back of my mind that like that element of like what were they actually thinking? You don't just like half-assedly think I'll put some hot sauce in these guns and put them in my duffel bag and bring them with me when we break into <laughs> the radio station. I don't know. Was... Yeah, why did he have that? <laughs> it's just that was my my first and only criticism. So. Okay, yeah. Well, I guess that's okay. okay good. Um, yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah, so... I, I think one of the things that was interesting for me is that this is a movie about being trapped in a radio station. Like, it's a hostage negotiation movie because the cops come and they can't leave. That's one of the big hijinks. Like, oh, we're stuck here. And there's no real plot to we're stuck like we're stuck in this radio station and we need to play our song you know we want to play our song and that's the story yeah so that what the movie does is throw in all these hijinks and then also throw in Mm -hmm. a bunch of subplots that relate to the main plot to keep things interesting and so it can constantly kind of move back and forth all the while our three main characters are kind of just sitting around waiting for something to happen yeah it's just yeah that's true yeah yeah, it's almost like a hangout movie, but there's just a little bit too much contrived about mm-hmm. it or too many um, things that are clearly like deliberately scripted in. Yeah. Uh, but it does have a little bit of that vibe of like, now we're here and what do we do? We just hang out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait for stuff to happen. Yeah, I counted up um, seven different subplots. So we have... Doug Beach, played by Kramer, who is also not yeah. the actor's name, but the guy who played Kramer, um, yeah. is in an awesome, I think, just like a phenomenal 
role just like wandering around the vents in hiding mm-hmm. trying to talk to the police trying to figure out what to do eventually gets his hands on a, a, a machine gun um uh-huh. and just like has a lot of physical comedy it's just him doing a lot of kramer falling all over the place kind of stuff and um it's great uh the there's like the chief conflict with the swat team there's mm-hmm. uh, there's a conflict within the uh to within the uh, law enforcement with between the swat team and i think maybe the chief is it two swat people or is one of them the fbi or well so i think it's the chief of police and the swat team so the swat the leader of the swat team comes but he's still subservient to the chief of police until i think like there's actual like killing or something so that's yeah that is one of the conflicts um kayla like this girlfriend who's who has Mm -hmm. who has the tape um and chris farley oh yeah okay wait I feel like we can go, like, I'm just going to be listing this, like, kind of monotonous list of subplots. But, like, David Arquette's in it. He has his own little subplot. There's a romance yeah, plot. Yeah. There's this, like, plot about the radio station itself and the, Chris, the dilemma between yeah. um, Milo and, what's the the disc jockey's name? The cool guy? The shark. Yeah, the shark. Milo, who's, like, the... It's Ian, the yeah. shark. Milo is the, um, like, stuck-up, you know, radio station manager right yeah the state the radio station they're gonna switch to easy listening yeah boo <laughs> so yeah just all kinds of like little things like that that yeah. we can follow chris farley chris farley plays a police officer who has his own adventure at one point he does have his own little adventure it reminded me of yeah. the, the scene so i feel like we should back up plot wise because one hijinks ensue meaning like it would be very easy for them to just bring their tape, break into the place, and have them play it. But unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, what yeah, happens yeah. is like they bring the tape, but it's the wrong kind of tape. So they have to find the right kind of tape player to play their like actual master recording, I think. Mm. And then when they play it, it the tape player eats the recording and then mm-hmm. messes it up. And then there's an ashtray and the tape falls into this ashtray and melts and so now they don't have their song and the only other version of it is a tape cassette that Chaz has um but his his girlfriend Kay- ex-girlfriend Kayla has and so then Chris Farley is sent out on the hunt to find Kayla and to get this tape back so that they can play it on the radio and then release the hostages yeah, yeah. and uh the the scene his little scene, his little search for her reminded me of Beverly Hills Ninja. There's a scene in Beverly Hills Ninja where <laughs> he's like, you know, trying to be this like pious monk and he has to go into um, a strip club and like find somebody. And it's just, it felt like the exact same scene, but then he ends up kind of playing a different character. But yeah, man, yeah. I love Chris Farley. I think he was probably my favorite comedian growing up. Yeah, okay. I love that guy. Word. Yeah. So yeah, um, lots of subplots, tons of cameos, and uh, just actors that you see in a lot of uh, comedies of this era. If you want to get into that, mm-hmm. I, yeah, let's do uh, that. We might as well. I feel like that's Chris Farley, of course. As we said, he's a police officer. Uh, the sergeant of the or the head of the SWAT team is Ernie Hudson, uh, who's probably, uh, I mean, I most know him from Ghostbusters. 
Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he's the chief. The yeah, chief he's of one of the Ghostbusters. Uh, Ernie Hudson. Yeah. Well, there's him, and then there's that other guy. I guess he is the head. Um, okay. Well, Michael McKean is the uh, stuck-up uh, radio uh, manager, like the main manager of the radio station, and he's kind of like the snobby, uh, like slick corporate guy. Uh, Michael McKean is he's in. I think he's in a bunch of the uh, Christopher Guest movies. He's definitely yes. in This Is Spinal yes, Tap, right. and he shows up like he's just a really familiar uh, actor. Even if you don't know, didn't know who he was, you've definitely seen him if you watched a '90s comedy. Um, we have Judd Nelson uh, as the uh, head of Palantine Records. He's the one at the very beginning Mike, who, um, base you know, tells Brendan Fraser, you know, I can't take your work unsolicited. Have basically have a good day. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, Michael Richards, as you already said, is another character who's wandering around in the vents <laughs> and maybe the most explicit diehard parody yeah. um let's see i'll get to uh i want to talk a little bit extra about uh i didn't know him before joe uh montigna i guess that's how you say it um i want to come loop around back to him because we also have david arquette uh of course from scream mm-hmm. um Harold Harold Ramis shows up at one point, uh, as posing as a uh, AR ANR executive. Uh, then we also have some rockers and some music related people. Uh, Rob Zombie's band, yeah. White Zombie, plays. That was cool. They go see they go see White Zombie, or somebody does. I think Kayla does. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with her. Um, that's uh, Amy Locan. Says she's in John Waters' uh, musical comedy Crybaby. So I actually haven't seen that, but I know it's a uh, classic John Waters film. Um, oh, yeah, okay. So then Lemmy uh, from Motorhead shows up at one point. Uh, and then clearly, I don't, yeah, the, okay, then the other one, uh, I don't actually remember seeing him, but you know, I, I don't remember what he was doing. But Kurt Loder, uh, who I think I remember just seeing on MTV all the time. Yeah. But it looks like he was also an editor at Rolling Stone. But I think I remember him showing up, I think, on MTV just all the time. Like, was he doing the news? The MTV yeah, he did news? MTV news and like interviews and stuff. I just, I think I may have talked about it on the podcast yeah. at some point. Maybe he showed up in another Adam Sandler movie. But I remember him like just being a dick to Jewel about her poetry. Like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it was just like. <laughs> Like nitpick, Kurt. nitpicking, like some metaphor. What are you doing, man? Yeah, it was lame. Yeah, but, um, that's yeah, that's too bad. I feel like people uh, see Jewel wasn't cool like uh, like rock music, like was. the Lone Rangers, <laughs> like the Lone Rangers, um, like White Zombie. Uh, but now I think I hope we can all agree that actually Jewel was cool, and uh, if we were uh, we were all wrong, if we were. The type of people that thought Jewel wasn't cool. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mike Judds calls into the radio station as Beavis and Butthead at one point. Not really explained. It's just at one point Beavis and Butthead, the actual Beavis and Butthead, presumably <laughs> no call into the radio station. And, butthead or and no one knows it. who they are. Yeah, yeah. And they're just doing the Beavis and Butthead voices. Like it's not, 
it's not a someone pretending to be Beavis and Butthead is like a prank call. It's just Beavis and Butthead calling. Yeah. There's two assume. real people out in the world. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because Mike Judge also does Beavis and Butthead voices in Sandy Wexler. If you remember, remember that part that. of that. Wow. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, this is, the, I guess, the first time Beavis and Butthead themselves, or the, at least their voices, have shown yeah, up in an Adam Sandler great. movie. There's a lot of other um, little cameos. Like... Cobert Watch. He's back, though. Oh. Technically, this is the first <laughs> he's one. He's back, or he's <laughs> still here, or he's here for the first time. <laughs> yeah, man, that was so great. I was so happy to see Alan Covert. Um and in a really wonderful little <laughs> little role and scene. Um, so he's he's the first police officer who shows up at the the radio station. And what happens is the the Lone Rangers, the band, are like, basically, we got to get the hell out of here. And so they decide to leave the way they came. And they see a cop car out there. And they send Pip out, uh, Adam Sandler's character. And so Adam Sandler is like pushed out and is going to try to get past the the police officer, I guess, to get the van and bring it back around or something. Um, and so Alan Covert steps out, looking very much like a, a young T-1000. I thought he looked like a – he made a good cop, <laughs> um, which is not a compliment. But <laughs> back, yeah, back on the Terminator, yeah. he uh, They do this funny little mimic thing where, you know, every – time pip takes a step alan covert takes a step and when, when pip right. steps back alan covert steps back and then adam sandler starts doing this little like almost like doing the robot walking and alan covert doesn't follow yeah, that totally. up. he just like continues to kind of pace himself with adam sandler trying to stay in, in the vicinity but i did feel like that was kind of an early little moment of the kind of like he does that specific move again in Billy Madison when he's like walking up the stairs. He does a kind of little robotic arm shuffle after his dad basically tells him you can go back to school and maybe have the company. Um, oh. So, yeah, just like a little glimpse I felt like into. I don't think he's really big on physical comedy exactly. He's more big, especially early Adam Sandler, on like yelling. I guess. Yeah. Which he does some of that in this too, but he does. But I felt like the little hand movements kind of thing was like it, yeah. him, him doing a little bit of his thing. Anyway, loved the scene. Love to see yeah. Alan again back at it after all these years. Yeah. Great, Great to see you still um, got it. Yeah. So talking about Adam Sandler yelling, uh, I felt like his character, this was a very like, this was like a, proto version of Adam Sandler's character mm. that he would play then in most of his 90s and 2000s movies yeah. up until he kind of I don't know I think he reeled it back mostly with big lately. definitely with big daddy yeah um but of like quiet voice suddenly into explosive anger yelling yeah like yeah. that was kind of the proto quiet shy boy. kind mm -hmm. of dumb um, yeah, and yeah, I think that's exactly right. And then, why aren't you listening to me? Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, like, I told you best. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so he does a little bit of that. Uh, I guess 
maybe for the first time in a, a movie because I don't think that's really what he's doing and uh, going overboard. Man, we were. So I am bad at my job. This is my job. Yep. <laughs> and I'm bad well, they don't at pay it. You enough, you know? uh, yeah, I know. But uh, I don't really know. Like, if I was a, a true, truly worthy of the position, the very uh, lofty position that I've declared for mm. myself of being on this mm. podcast, I would know where that character really originated from, from his albums, from his early stand up, SNL. Like, he has such a rich canon of where that one character that he plays could have come from. Yeah. But uh, I don't That's know. That's a question for the scholars. I don't know. We're not I didn't really the scholars. Get into we yeah, are right, kind of the yeah. middleman between the scholars right. and the ignorant masses. You know, yeah. we, we make it <laughs> exactly. palatable. We make it fun. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but yeah, that's definitely an early version of that and not quite developed as it would be later. Yeah. It was like they weren't quite sure how, I think they weren't quite sure how that character fits. Like, You'd think that would be a side character mm-hmm. almost, but something about Adam Sandler, his star power was just too undeniable, and then that character was like, "No, that is the character. That character played that guy the movie. Yeah, He's... play the dumb yeah, play guy. guy. <laughs> yeah, I love the um, one of my favorite scenes is when Steve Buscemi and Adam Sandler are they've like gone to check on the door or something and they're coming back and Steve Buscemi's like, "You gotta quit being so nice to the hostages. You have to." You know, you can't just be kind to them because they're going to take advantage of that and mess things up. you got to be really direct with them. And so Steve Buscemi's showing him how to be really mean. And, like, you know, you got to sound like you're really intense and you're really going to kill them and that kind of thing. And Pip is practicing it, and Rex, the older brother, is like, no, you're not doing it right because Adam Sandler's like, get over there or you're going to be in trouble. You know, he's he, he doesn't have, <laughs> like, a mean bone in his body, you can tell. And Rex is like no no you know he's like hitting him you know get really mean and adam sandler then does his like yelling persona um and he says i'm gonna stab your head off (laughs) which i just thought was such a great phrasing a great way to phrase it and like perfect exactly what someone would say who was really reluctant to say something mean and had not prepared ahead of time and just like <laughs> what's the meanest thing i can think stabbing someone's head off <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty mean yeah you know who else i thought was mean uh in this movie steve buscemi mm-hmm. plays a pretty he he definitely plays the maybe the meanest of the three yeah. like adam sandler's pip is very sweet natured mm-hmm. i think Brendan Fraser's character is basically sweet natured, yeah. but also very dumb. Yeah, really dumb. <laughs> and uh, but he has, he has a big dream. But sidebar, I I thought the part where the radio uh, DJ, who we still have to get back to that guy, but I uh, was like, okay, what do you what do you have to say to them? Uh, you're you're speaking for twenty thousand fans. What do you what do you got to say? And Brendan Fraser, I think he's just like. Rock and roll yes. or something. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but Steve Buscemi does seem to have a bit of meanness in him. It's He kind of instigates the whole thing. He's got the fake guns. He decides to hold it hostage. Yeah. He's And the only thing I really have to say about that is just Steve Buscemi, who I think I have almost only seen as a character actor. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that I can think of a what you might call normal 
role. He probably has them. Yeah. But like everything that I can think of picturing him, whether it's Adam Sandler movies or the or Coen Brothers movies or uh, um, Con Air, <laughs> they're all basically what you'd get a character, a great character actor to do, yeah. which is play somebody a little off beat or off kilter. But they're all different. Yeah. Um, and I think that that speaks to what a great character actor he is in that like this character did not feel the same as like maybe he's a little bit he has a little bit of the guy he plays in Fargo but you know very different from the guy he plays in uh, The Big Lebowski oh for sure right where like so he's got a lot of range within that so he can play a lot of different types of characters I don't know I'm just just thinking about that yeah I mean speaking of like I mean, I think of the three, he is, to me, the best actor by far. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I noticed, and I, I noticed it, like, halfway through, so it could be that the first half would, like, disprove this point, but I was trying to pay attention to the length of shots. Like, so in any given mm-hmm. scene, how long is a shot? And I I felt like, just, like, casually observing, uh, Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi get longer shots with them talking, Whereas Brendan mm-hmm. Fraser seemed to get a lot of cut shots. So like within a scene, it would cut a lot so that he would only actually be saying one line or two at a time. Hmm. And like the Steve Buscemi, Adam Sandler exchange where Steve Buscemi is trying to get him to talk. That's, that's like two long shots with like one thing in the middle that's cut up a little bit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Just it, it, and that's to me that is a testament to an actor that like okay you can you can sustain this scene you can sustain the persona the character the moment longer than like a single line um mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know i don't know yeah, how that's... i don't i've never thought of brendan fraser as a good actor he did win an oscar for the whale i think but um mm-hmm. i mean before that i never really not like a terrible actor but just not like a philip seymour hoffman or steve buscemi or something like that um mm-hmm. and i didn't find him that very handsome very handsome i tell you what that guy that kid's <laughs> gonna go places um yeah him and that alan Coe. i think those two are gonna really yeah <laughs> i i mean i think he's a great he was a great uh physical comedian actually mm. uh, going back to encino man which i watched for the first time uh about a I think it was actually more less than a year ago, but uh, I don't know. He he does a well. Someone who's like a snob might a fil, a real film snob might might be. Watch like, out! You're looking at one. No, all he's doing he's he's just dancing. Yeah. <laughs> he's just he's just kind of beefy and dancing, and that's. But you know what? Maybe that's all it takes in my book. If it mesmerizes but, you, and it's, yeah. yeah, it mesmerized me. Yeah. And it's you know, man, he does a lot of dances and a lot of like. But he's like playing a caveman, and like, I think he does a good job. That's cool. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like what is it? Damning somebody with faint praise, <laughs> I think is the expression. But I don't intend it that I way. Couldn't I couldn't tell he was a, a caveman. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a fun and I don't know a, a good role, and he did a good job at it. And then he plays uh, George of the Jungle later on, um, so he he was really good at that stuff, which. I didn't quite feel like he got 
to be fully like as goofy as he had in um in this movie yeah he he had like in a way the thing that i loved about adam sandler in this and his early movies which is obnoxious but i still loved it the like i'm either whispering cutely or i'm yelling I feel like Brendan mm. Fraser was doing the exact same thing in this movie, but his yelling has this yeah. kind of like shrill whine to it that's mm. really, yeah. really obnoxious. And I don't want to... I could listen to Adam Sandler yell all day long, but Brendan Fraser, I'm less inclined to listen to yell. Yeah, I, I think he came... Yeah, I think he really found his character. Like I said, I haven't seen these movies. I don't know School Ties. I know that's a drama. Uh, but some of these other ones but like i don't know not to pigeonhole him or whatever george of the jungle though i I think is a hoot (laughs) um he's just silly in it he just he found a silly character that he plays really well now i will say and i think you know man yeah george of the jungle blast from the past that's at least three movies where Brendan Fraser is basically playing like a fish out of water who doesn't really know how yeah, to communicate. That's with it. The rest of the world. Fish out of water. Yes, yeah. that's the character. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, yeah. but I think that's it exactly. And then uh, shortly at like I guess immediately after that uh, was the Mummy, which transported him into like an action mm-hmm. star in the kind of like a snarky action like the action star that is now the main character of every Marvel movie where you're like, they're, you're constantly, they're constantly like yelling at each other cause they're stressed, but it's like kind of funny yelling. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Where did you put the dynamite? I told you to put it in your backpack. Why? Where's the backpack? Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's not a real scene. For oh, the mummy, I thought but... it was. That was really, you <laughs> took me there, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I think everybody knows what I'm talking about with that. And then he kind of transformed into that, which I thought he was fine at. But he was absolutely fine at it. I think that's something that a lot of people do. And But it, maybe it lacks that fish-out-of-water charm that I, I do really enjoy in the three movies that you mentioned. Yeah. For Brendan Fraser. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will preface this by saying that I didn't like The Whale and stopped it halfway through. So some of this may just me be, may be me being a hater. Uh, but like Mm -hmm. to me the fish out of water role is a perfect role for somebody who is not a particularly good actor Mm. because they can play someone who doesn't know how to behave properly and that becomes like a point of comedy but i guess they Mm -hmm. have to be able to play the fish out of water they have to be able to play that particular person like blast from the past is about a sh- person who's been in a bomb shelter all his life and has to come out and yeah i don't know I don't yeah know. just i didn't find his acting compelling in the whale and then i didn't find it compelling here which is a very different this is a very different movie and like just in general i feel like even my memory of the mummy movies it's a lot of him i don't know yelling shrilly I don't know. I don't know. We don't have to keep. I don't have anywhere to go with this. I'm just. We've got one. So right now we the Adam, the fourth Adam Sandler podcast is I think perfectly split between uh, fans of Brendan Fraser and less fans of Brendan Fraser because I I would put myself as a fan of Brendan <laughs> Fraser, absolutely. 
This was um, all your ploy to get yeah, us to yeah. do a Brendan Fraser yeah, podcast, yeah. and I'm I'm telling you, <laughs> no. we got we we get to do uh, Looney Tunes back in action. Uh, we get to do the Dazzled 2000s, the Dazzled. I think a remake of an older movie, uh, which I think is actually terrible, unfortunately. But <laughs> uh, we get to do Monkey Bone, which I haven't seen, but it looks pretty wild. I'm just saying. Well, I know, but. You there keep some saying movies you, you that I intentionally never watched because I knew they had Brendan <laughs> Fraser in them. <laughs> God damn it. No, I don't hate the guy that much. I actually like the Mummy he's, movies. Yeah. That's a great... He's going to... Uh-huh. a great bumper sticker that I bought for a friend of mine who likes the Mummy movies. And it says, I'd so much rather be watching the impeccable... 1999 blockbuster hit The Mummy starring Brendan Fraser. It's just an amazing, <laughs> yeah, and who amazing would, bumper sticker. Who amongst us? Um, it looks like he's going to be in Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the Martin oh, Scorsese yeah. movie that is coming out or may possibly already be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, but which is interesting because to me, because he's definitely doing the thing. So, like, I feel like there's a thing where, at least, where, like, actors that are not necessarily taken that seriously, and then they have comebacks where they do movies that are done by, like, esteemed uh, directors and stuff. I think of John Travolta, primarily, coming back for uh, Pulp Fiction. Um. You know, it seems like he's kind of doing that a little bit because we had The Whale, which is Darren Aronofsky. And then we have Killers of the Flower Moon, which is Martin Scorsese. So we're definitely in the... If it, and, and, and that's... Bren, that's like... Um, it's so weird because you know there's all this like behind-the-scenes PR, you know, mm-hmm. talent management stuff going on to like strike while the mm-hmm. iron's hot. And, you know, we gotta, we're going to get Brendan... You know, he, it's been a while and he had that that weird sexual harassment thing 10 years ago mm-hmm. or so, but we're going to get Brendan in on a, a, a an artsy flick. And then from mm-hmm. there, we're, we're going to nail him an Oscar. And then from there, he's going to be able to go and do this, this, and this. And I don't know, just, it, I guess it's timely because we're talking about airheads, which is a movie about some down on their luck rock rockers who just want, they have made an incredible song and they just want people to hear the song and they want to rock, you know? They want to do the thing that they were born to do, but they can't because of the system. And here we go again, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying I was I'm trying to think if I would put uh, Adam Sandler himself in that category, but not really because he didn't come back. And also he pers- cons- like he's he's so he's so different in that like there's a lot of actors that have made the transition from kind of light fluff, I guess you'd call it like, you know, popcorn movies or whatever to I'm going to do, I'm a serious artist now. Um, and I do serious things. Uh, and Adam Sandler very, it seems like intentionally, uh, like, defiantly did not do that yeah but he will make good movies good quote-unquote good movies 
maybe there's a better way to say that, but more arts, artis, artsy, fartsy. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's... High, highfalutin movies. Yeah. Uh, when he's, in, when he seems like he's interested in doing mm-hmm. it, in the role, and then he, like, he'll make a Punch Drunk Love, which we always talk about, Uncut Gems, various other ones, uh, and then he'll go right back to Grown Ups, uh, just because, and I think there's something admirable about that, honestly, assuming he's not just doing it for money, which I th- some people just do things for money, but I bet mo- a lot of people, even people Man, that he, put, he pours his heart could, could be accused of that. I think he does. Too. If you watch that, I again, really think he does. Yeah. No, I I think it, I mean there's no way to know, and I, but I do think there's yeah. something. It's telling that. Um, Adam Sandler is like a business unto himself. You know, like he is a brand yeah. in a way that no, very few other actors are. And it's like, it seems mm-hmm. to me that what he wants to do is make goofy movies with his friends. And he does yeah. that. And then he makes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars off of these movies. <laughs> right. So it's like, yeah. he doesn't need to do anything else, but he does i mean he can act and like even in these mo- like even yeah. him being funny in airheads you see him i mean i'm like i said like you watch a long shot of him playing this dumb character and and managing to do it and like showing his range from very shy to very angry and yeah i, I think he's to me to me it just seems like he's somebody who likes to goof off with his friends but also really loves to try new things and try out new acting roles and you know it's not i don't think that like uncut gems was like oh my god i've never seen anyone act this well this is just incredible Mm -hmm. to me it was just somebody who is a solid actor who acted in a really compelling movie Uh, you know i've never seen him in a role where i was like holy shit that's adam sandler like like um yeah uh, daniel day lewis or Philip Seymour Hoffman sure, or no, uh, yeah, Christian yeah, yeah. Bale to me are like great examples of, of really wide range. But, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I agree though, that there's something really interesting about his kind his, of trajectory. His, his good movie his again, quote unquote, good movies. Um, but the movies that get the high critical acclaim, he is playing a version of a char- of characters that he does in other stuff too. I think. Yeah, that's right. Like Punch Drunk, Punch Drunk Love is like Punch Drunk Love's thesis is, I think, what if an Adam Sandler movie was also a PT Anderson movie? <laughs> what if an Adam <laughs> like, Sandler character just, was in a real life scenario? Yeah, yeah. right. Because he is just playing the same guy. Quiet voice, explosive anger, mm-hmm. but the explosive anger is a little bit more upsetting because it seems like a real thing uh and then uncut gems is like an almost i don't know a sort of a almost exaggerated version of like jewish new york wheeler and dealer which i think is very much in the role of like adam sandler doing a character but he, he does put pat like real pathos to it and bring depth to it but it does feel like something that's in his wheelhouse of like doing accents and like doing kind of exaggerated characters and just again in this one the exaggerated character is in a stressful situation that you you are stressed about as a viewer yeah 
Uncut gems or airheads? Un- okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was stressed during airheads as well. Uh, yeah. All right, you're right. We're getting off topic. I'm sorry, folks. I know I know our viewer, our listeners hate that. Um, so we did want to talk about the music a little bit, uh, particularly. So uh, what I had to say about it, basically, so I mean, most of the soundtrack is this kind of like 80s metal, even though I think yeah. some of it's from the 90s, of course, but like 80s and 90s metal, like what I think of, as I said at the beginning, is like almost like pre-grunge when grunge was supposedly destroyed all that, but clearly did not. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a little bit that I think is interesting about one of the main conflicts in the movie is harkens to the idea of selling out, which I thought was kind of interesting, especially like they do not want to, uh, Brent Fraser does not want to sell out. So he's even offered a record contract at one point in the movie his dream the thing he really wants yeah and because it does not work for him like it because it involves compromising some kind of value of his he won't do it um and that is also at one point they win over one of their hostages who is the radio dj the shark played by again let's see (laughs) that word i don't know why but that one always trips you up Joe. Uh, I think it's <laughs> Joe Ma- Joe Joe Mantina. M a n t e m a n t e g n a. I think Joe Montana, but that sounds like Joe, Joe Montana. Mon- I think I think Joe Montana. Is it? It sure does. Montana. Who I, I was just looking at him and I I didn't know anything about him, but he had he yeah. seems to have a interesting uh and long career uh playing in a lot of different movies yeah oh he's also uh maybe his biggest role is in criminal minds it looks like i knew i recognized him from somewhere and not other movies but i thought his uh his character was really interesting as well because the character oh yeah this is what okay selling out his character um the shark uh he is a boomer basically he's like from the 60s generation at one point he says he thinks rock and roll went downhill uh after john lennon was uh murdered um which if you is a uh baby boomer trope which i don't know like i so i grew up on uh like a lot of like basically like guitar classic rock guitar magazines as a kid (laughs) okay so like i very much so I ingrained, and I also then I got into uh, punk rock and reading stories about basically like 1980s punk rock. And so the whole, so I had this very, like this narrative, pop culture narrative, uh, basically like ingrained into me of like, okay, on one hand, the baby boomers, what they claimed was like their rock was the real rock music. And it, it kind of started to suck after that, where in the 80s, it was like hair metal, which was a lot more corporate. Even in the 70s, uh, if you've seen the movie Almost Famous, there's a lot of allusions to that idea. and But also, within the punk rock story, like the, the narrative surrounding it as it came out, was that baby boomer nostalgia was actually a poison. And it was a bunch of people past their prime, which 
at the time would have been people in their 40s, ancient, ancient people in their 40s who, how dare they try to continue to be culturally relevant. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Which is how, as a 14-year-old, made perfect sense to me. They were ancient and they needed to (laughs) shut the fuck up. Uh, I now realize how, how horribly wrong I was as I... As I approach the old age of uh, 22, guys, I'm relevant. I'm not. I'm, You're only I'm, as old as you look. Yeah. <laughs> and my God, you look old. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, that was me. Um, cool. Oh, thank you. Um, but anyway, like as a, as a kid, so the narrative of punk rock was like, they want to just kind of have this like, oh, yeah, man, the only real rock was Woodstock and Jimi Hendrix and stuff. And then the, the idea was like, no punk rockers are still creating this vibrant uh, culture of rock music and the baby boomers need to like take a step back because it's the kids' turn. Now, the irony of all of this is that the kids whose turn it was uh, are, are, were also kids who are like teenagers in like 1982. <laughs> and I was reading this stuff in like 1999 or something. <laughs> so like... Well, it was a Gen X narrative, though. I think that was a big thing with Gen X. Um, so anyway, the radio DJ, he's kind of of that older generation of like rock and roll sold out and it went downhill. But something about Brendan Fraser's character wins him over because he's so committed to just the purity of rock music and loving yeah. rock and wanting to rock. And again, he has no other message other than that. Just he wants to rock. <laughs> and so Joe, the shark, becomes his manager at the end, by the end of it and has been completely won over uh yeah. and what they're all really in war against is uh kenny g and the smooth sounds of easy listening, easy listening. <laughs> 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 um, which is trying to destroy rock music which is also i think a narrative that uh if you grew up in the 90s like me and were into rock music you heard plenty of <laughs> yeah Man, the whole like intergenerational warfare mm-hmm. is so weird to me. And I'm like, where did this start? Because this is not like a natural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine people mm-hmm. like 2,000 years ago or 100 years ago being like, oh, yeah, our generation was real, but this new generation, yeah. they just have everything fed to them. And oh, it's really. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm baffled by the way that that is set up. And on one side you have the like disgruntled older person who's like, ah, the younger people just don't get it. Oh, what mm-hmm. their music. So uh, it hurts my ears and I don't like it. And then on the other hand, I do think you have this maybe seemingly more legitimate idea that, yeah, people need to make way for the younger people because mm-hmm. they have new ideas and are going to do interesting things. And, you know, you only have a, sh- a, a kind of, a limited window to do something meaningful and mm-hmm. i can even re- i read a book um about kid a the radiohead album mm-hmm. and the and by a respected journalist and music journalist and he's his like underlying thesis was basically radio had radiohead had their like their their time and it mm-hmm. was from the albums okay computer to in rainbows and then since then like they'll continue to make really great music but it will never be uh, this like kind of phenomenal work that they were able to do at the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. because the timing was right for them but also they were young enough to like to take that and you know 
use use all those catalysts to make something really incredible mm. and basically saying like they're too old now just like everyone is and, and as someone who is now well into their 30s yeah. i'm like i am too i'm not actually 22 no just he's not 22 <laughs> i'm way more creative now absolutely than i was as a kid and i yeah. think i'm willing to take more risks as a creative person now than mm -hmm. i was as a kid and you know and so it's and i think it's it, it's only true of music and pop music and rock music too i feel like mm. maybe you don't feel that way but i feel like that is where you get that narrative you get that narrative and like i remember like you know i, I bought it completely like I remember, like, people made fun of the Rolling Stones because they dared to continue to want to be a rock and roll band in, into yeah. their, at the time, like, maybe 50s. And now, now and it's now, fine. Now it's fine. Oh, yeah, that. of course. Yeah. You really, There's somebody people in their 70s and 80s, me. like, fuck that, yeah. man. Ugh, old. Whoa, too old. Yeah. yeah, when they were, like, 40, <laughs> they were fine. Really, yeah. actually, younger than they were before to me. Yeah. <laughs> they still, man, they still got it. <laughs> Um, so, but there is also like, there is something to like, because yeah, it's like you said, there is also plenty of people who are like, nah, our generation was the only one. The kids today are, don't know how to rock. There are people that say that stuff. So yeah. And that was, so it's all kind of mixed up, but yeah. Yeah. I had a friend's birthday today and I, um, will often send like a gif that is just like a weird happy birthday gift that I just find. Like I'll type in happy birthday and then scroll until I find a really weird gift, like one of Garfield saying happy uh -huh. birthday or something. And I found one that it was something like, may your day be as wonderful as millennials expect every day ought to be. Uh -huh. So like, you know, may you just be like super privileged and, you know, coddled or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that kind of idea just permeates our culture. And I don't know, again, like I'm like, what is... To me, it, it ties in well with like commodity culture, right? We mm -hmm. want the new thing. We we are constantly bombarded with mm -hmm. like uh, the obsolescence of everything yes, around yes. us and the need to get something it's, new, um, whether to like fit in or just man, because yeah. our fucking computer's broken it's, again. Um, we have to. So there is each generation of kids. We have to create a new pop culture to sell them, and yeah. we also have to. But we also have to maintain nostalgia culture for the for older people. And we have to like enforce these to sell them to sell things to people basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was a when I was in college as an undergrad, I read this book, something about the rise of consumer culture or something like that. But um, in one of my classes, and the thing, one of the things that blew my mind is it was super critical of the counterculture of the '60s. Or it wasn't even critical of it. It was just acknowledging that that was at least in part a advertising uh, mechanism because it once the post-war stuff happened, everybody gets a fridge. Everybody get, moves into the suburbs. Yeah. It starts a family. Well, everybody already bought all that stuff. So what do you sell their kids? They already have fridges. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, well, create a new identity for them. Now we sell them something else. Now yeah. you don't you you buy a tie dye refrigerator because you're cool. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and we create like every possible avenue yeah. for identity, and then harp on the idea that you have to be different. Yeah. And so, what choices are you going to make that are going to make you your unique 
yeah. self. And I don't still within this system. And I don't think that is entirely all that I don't think that's entirely all there was to sixties counterculture. I do think no. there was a legitimate like let's try to not make the mistake let's try to create something new and not make the mistakes because they did resist the war they did experiment with other ways of living some successfully and some not uh so there was real meat to that but i definitely think it was taken advantage of by uh advertising and consumerism and capitalism which is like yeah capitalism swall eats everything right yeah, spits yeah, yeah. It back out at you and yeah I, I really liked the line, um, they're watching the news, and it was, you know, this incredibly, I don't know, like, compelling way to think about their situation, because they've taken these hostages, they're at the radio mm-hmm. station, and the news anchor says something basically like, um, these three disgruntled, disillusioned young men um, ha- are, you know, lashing out at, at a society yeah. that won't listen That's to right. them, and this line... Um, they have lashing out against the only capitalist edifice their MTV soaked minds recognize. <laughs> and I just found that like really fascinating and like such a, so chewy, you know, yeah, like, yeah. You sit with that and think about that because there is, I feel like that speaks to like what a lot of people are disgruntled. When a lot of people are disgruntled, they get upset at the thing they see you know the thing that they notice and so it's like the record execs aren't listening to me the um the radio station isn't playing my music when like the deeper issue is like i can't find meaningful work Mm -hmm. you know i can't find work that isn't doesn't feel like it alienates me from Mm -hmm. like the actual work or you Mm -hmm. know takes all of my time away and destroys me Mm -hmm. um like i don't know how to form healthy relationships Mm -hmm. with women and you know i'm this like young man who wants to be in a relationship so i don't know i just thought it was like it like much of the movie felt very or it like a variety of moments in the movie felt very knowing Mm -hmm. and like oh wait this is a smarter movie than it's letting on Mm -hmm. but it never capitalizes on the sense that you're in a smart movie right and uh so the people some of the people that made the movie the director also michael uh lehman or lemon uh, is best known for Heather's, which is also a movie that is like almost smart. <laughs> Not to knock Heather's fans. It's, it's like a good movie, but it almost seems to be making a point. Of it. Maybe it is making a point. It's been a while since I watched it. It's a, but also a really fun thing and maybe not the most like how people conform and it's good to not conform, but also not good to try to blow up your school or whatever happens in that movie. <laughs> Right, almost smart, almost a good point. Uh, and then the writer, I'm not sure I know anything about, but uh, Rich Wilkes. He did Triple X, the Vin Diesel movies. I saw that. I didn't see that. That's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a weird, I don't think <laughs> I remember what else he did. But I just he like, co-wrote that's... The Dirt, uh, the uh, biopic of The Dirt, which is based on the Motley Crue book, The Dirt. <laughs> okay. So I don't know. I thought maybe I'd... he's actually he's in the movie I, I saw on yeah. Wikipedia and then I watched you know I saw the I caught it before he shows up but he's just somebody who at one point Brendan Fraser's like I was a nerd in high school I admit it and everybody in the crowd starts admitting it and he's like I wore corduroy pants <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he also he was a writer and executive producer for the music documentary punk like me what, what is that about is that a 
That's so weird. Is that about wrestling, though? This that's is, a play on like a the title Black Like Me, which oh, okay. may be a play on another title, but that Black Like Me is about a, a white... It's a white journalist who does um, skin pigmentation and become, you know, tries to pass as black and then goes into the deep south and then tells the story of his encounters with white people while posing as a black man. And so he wrote this book called Black Like Me. Um, so it's weird that they would like take that uh-huh. and appropriate it for a uh, music genre, but also feels odd. There is like, I, I wasn't going to mention it. I don't really have a lot to say about it, but there's this really weird race mm-hmm. subtext running throughout the movie where like a couple of like the first uh, person they while they're getting all the hostages there's a black guy who works at the radio station and he's like oh another example of the white man trying to hold the black man down Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing and then adam sandler's character is dumb but like weirdly sympathetic Mm -hmm. and interested in talking about race stuff yes and so like he has a conversation with a woman where he's like you know don't you hate when like you go into a store and everybody's just like eyeing you and you're like i'm just here to buy some food and the black woman's like that's never happened to Mm -hmm. me has that happened to you? And Adam Sandler's like, never mind. Um, and then Brandon Fraser has his whole rock and roll thing uh-huh. where he chants that. But then later in the movie, he's outside with the crowd and he starts chanting Rodney King. Yes, he does. Which is weird. And the like relevance of it, I guess, is the black woman's like, why is he chanting? Or is he chanting Rodney King? And Adam Sandler's character's like, yeah. That's that guy, which I think was like another really smart moment of the movie being like these morons don't even really know. Like they just know that some guy got beat up by the police. Yeah. They don't know like uh-huh. the really what it means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but again, the, again why it's it doesn't not really relevant or appropriate for them to compare their situation to yes. Rodney yes. King and the L.A. riots. Mm-hmm. Um and I just think some of it to me, maybe I do think in the in nineties comedy, they did like to play the kind of archetypal angry black man character for laughs a bit. Like, I don't know, which it doesn't, I don't think any of that stuff aged very well, but yeah. I think because in the nineties, Maybe there was like more of a feeling of like in pop culture, aren't we kind of like past all this, but then there's still people holding on to this baggage. So like, yeah, we'll have like a black character. He's still hung up on Malcolm X. Listen to mm-hmm. him. Like, but where yeah. it's 1994, baby. We, uh, everybody just needs to invest in the stock market. We're post race, man. <laughs> yeah. But also that this is the decade of the actual Rodney King uh assault and it's got to be like LA what three years later yeah. or something so was it 91 I so think. it's not like there wasn't stuff out there that you could actually engage with and say hmm, maybe we're not there maybe this wasn't just yeah. a weird thing that happened maybe it ties into a history of things like this happening for a particular reason which is our society um but anyway, but anyway, I just think, yeah, to me, I almost read it like that. Is, and I think also 
in a lot of 90s stuff, there is a, they play also for laughs of like, oh, I'm an awkward white guy and I don't really know how to talk to this black guy who, he might be angry. <laughs> yeah, where like the the black character is often kind of the straight man uh-huh. to the, you're just like, oh, white people are so crazy. Yeah, yeah, right. Don't know what they'll get up yeah. to, which, yeah. So there was a lot of um, stuff like that that, again, some of it maybe hinted at something that could have made a point, but I, I think they were not really thinking that thoroughly about it to make a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say, and this, if we want, can kind of be the last word on, on the movie, but I feel like that speaks to this other element of the movie, which is the song that they Yeah, yeah, totally, play. yeah. And I kept wondering, like, okay, is this going to be a good song? Are they even going to show the song? Uh-huh. Or is it going to be kind of like a Tenacious D tribute thing? It's <laughs> like, I can't give you the song because it's not going to live up oh, to yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Um, they end up playing, like, a cool song. Yeah. Have, like, a memorable yes, song. Yeah. It's called Degenerated. Yes. And it's a song by... Uh, Reagan yes um, which you probably know more well a lot more about than I do but I'll just say from my experience was I looked up to see if this was a legit a real Mm -hmm. song found out about Reagan youth and found out that basically the lead singer had like you know they'd been like a popular punk Mm -hmm. band in New York City Mm -hmm. in high school ultimately lead singer falls into drugs Mm -hmm. develops a bad heroin addiction becomes like a kind of dealer user um gets into a lot of terrible situations ends up getting severely beaten by a rival drug dealer and has to have a lobotomy um, oh okay i didn't know any of this girlfriend yeah. is also a heron uh also becomes addicted to heroin she ends up being uh becoming a prostitute to fund their addiction and then is murdered by a serial killer and then Dang. the guy after she's murdered the lead singer ends up committing suicide and this all happens like a year before airheads comes oh. out so when they're easily like pre-production or in the midst of production all of like this really tragic thing happens that to me speaks to like all the really terrible ways that rock and roll is intertwined with like drugs mm-hmm. and misogyny mm-hmm. and exploitation and I don't know, man. It just it left a really bad taste in my mouth for that to be the final oh, thing. Okay. Obviously, a, a terrible tragedy, but but also like this movie that is so boneheaded uh-huh. and yet is like cutting so close to all of this really real stuff, yeah. and deliberately chooses this song as like the final song, yeah. but has no like commentary on that, no context. Mm. Just like that's the song. I don't know. And what I and what I thought. So I didn't know any of the. I didn't know that much about Reagan Youth. I just know they were a band, uh, like a hardcore band from the '80s, and that they were named, uh, like obviously as a like protest against the politics of Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. like a lot of bands of the time. And so I always hold that stuff, like that stuff's happened simultaneously to the rise of hair metal. And so you have hair metal, which is more about like partying and girls and apolitical ultimately or maybe the politics are just something like the youth we're gonna rise up to party or something like that (laughs) um versus uh like i think legitimate attempts to say something though probably a lot of it fairly adolescent because it was made by adolescents Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, including the band, the adolescents, but um, 
like a le legitimate attempts to make some kind of societal critique uh, and occasionally couched in politics, like actual political theory. Uh, and I did, yeah. So, and I, I put Reagan youth in kind of that category. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought it was just interesting that that's where the song, where they ended. And I don't know if that was like, we're going to make a nod to this other thing that was kind of happening simultaneously that maybe had a little bit more substance to it or more to say than yeah. a lot of what else is going on. I liked that element oh. before I looked into the, his, and, uh -huh. and maybe, it, maybe it can be both ways. Yeah, go ahead. Or, uh, or if it just speaks to, we get these narratives later on after the fact of like, there's a clear distinction between grunge and hair metal and the hardcore, like 80s hardcore and all these things that are like separate subcultures that wouldn't necessarily get along. Uh, but at the time, it's maybe harder to distinguish that. And so maybe like lots of people are just like, I'm just a fan of loud rock music. Love Reagan Youth, love Motley Crue, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. love White Zombie. Um, or maybe that's just, it all looked like a big old pile of the same thing to uh, executives who choose the things that happen in movies. <laughs> Could be any of these things. I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, just thought, I also thought it was an interesting choice, though. I, it, was an, it was a choice that I, at first, was like, oh, this degenerated. This sounds like a little bit of a... There's, like, commentary in this. This is mm -hmm. saying something. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I found out the really messed up story behind it it was just kind of like god it's i don't know what you do with it but i feel like you got to do more than just like use the song mm -hmm. but maybe it was just like yeah. the person picking the music being like this is an awesome song and i just want to you know put it out there and get it some yeah. more airplay because it deserves airplay or they uh were able to uh buy the uh licensing yeah for it. that was the only <laughs> song they could get the licensing for. yeah yeah <laughs> It's either this or an actual Motley Crue song, and that just feels wrong. <laughs> yeah. Motley Crue would be more expensive, I imagine. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I was referring to Motley Crue, C-R-E-W. The other Motley oh. Crue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Not enough people talk about no, that. But they were actually, they came out before the Motley Crue we all know. Yeah. And that that's a story for another time. It is indeed, folks. I'm, we have I'm now it's that time and reached we... the point where this is as long as the film we watched. God damn it! Again, <laughs> baby. Uh, anyway, we'll make it quick. If you have questions, concerns, complaints, shoot us an email at four aspodcast at gmail .com. Otherwise, you can find all of our Adam Sandler episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Just look up the fourth Adam Sandler podcast, and I think that will probably work. I have not actually done that on anything other than Google Podcasts, but I think it'll probably work everywhere. <laughs> Any final it's hard words? To say, and there's no way to know. Um, I got nothing. That just keep on rocking, fellas. Keep on rocking, and until next time, hibbity dibbity. Hibbity dibbity.